The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics Podcast for November 12th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, recovering from a bit of a cold. That's why the timber of my voice is even lower than usual. But we uh, will not be stopped from doing a hell of a show for you today. First things first. We're going to take a look at the state of the Build Back Better bill. What is happening in the House? What is happening in the Senate? We heard from our boy Bill Scher on Wednesday that he believes this thing is going to be passed sometime in early December. But if that's the case, then we're going to have to get moving on it at some point. Also, we have a bit of a kerfuffle in Buffalo a progressive yub-nub moment in the primaries turned sour when an upset that put a progressive in line to be mayor of Buffalo was scuttled when the mayor who lost the primary ran a write-in candidacy and won. The progressives now want their comeuppance by stripping that mayor from his leadership positions in the national party. Will it happen? What are the details? We will get to those. Also, our boy Evan Scrimshaw is back because we are officially on Wave Watch. Yes. Yes. It's just the wave. We are going to see whether or not a red wave will topple majorities in the House and the Senate. We we actually go a lot into detail on a announcement that was made earlier this week, and that is Chris Sununu deciding that he is not going to run for Senate in New Hampshire. That's a blow to Republicans. Is it a blow to their hopes of winning control of the Senate? Evan will tell us. His opinion. But first. So let's take a look at the ever-evolving issues around the Build Back Better bill. Here's where we're going to start. Because I'm a salty dog. We're going to start with the salt issue. That is the state and local tax deduction, which allows blue state folks to deduct high state taxes from their federal taxes. So basically, it makes living in a state with high local taxes more palatable because you are able to to deduct them from your federal taxes. This was capped at 10000 during the Trump tax cuts. That is how 
the math worked for them to give the tax cuts to other people is to basically not allow people who live in high taxation blue states to get around paying their federal taxes. Now, this is something that a lot of the moderates that have very much pushed not only the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but whose votes are needed to get the BBB passed, are making an absolute non-negotiable, this thing needs to happen issue. They want SALT back the way it was, if not better. Now, the House and the Senate have different philosophies on dealing with it. The House wants to substantially raise the cap back beyond 10000 and the Senate wants to means test this so nobody too rich gets to escape paying federal taxes, according to The Hill. The most recent version of The Hill's bill on BBB would raise the cap from 10000 to 80000 Holding it at that level through 2030, the cap would then revert back to 10000 But, of course, once you go, you know, eight years with these tax benefits, the great likelihood is that it will stay. Somebody will, uh, especially the people that are voted in these districts, will vote to keep it as high as it is forever. That is That is the assumption. However... Bernie Sanders and Bob Menendez in the Senate said last week that they are developing a proposal that takes a different approach. They're going to keep the cap at 10,000 and make that cap permanent, but including an exemption from the limit for taxpayers with incomes under either 400,000 or 550,000. So if you make over 400,000 or 550,000 and you live in a high local tax state, So let's say New York, New Jersey, California, whatever. Uh, uh, Basically, you would want to keep your (laughs) you want to keep your income below five hundred fifty thousand if you want to get a higher than ten thousand dollar exemption. And this is all because, you know, look, a lot of. Millionaires and billionaires, the top 1% of the 1%, live in blue states and cities. L.A., San Francisco, New York, uh, where all the hedge fund people live in New Jersey. Like, these are very rich areas. So when you are allowing loopholes there, you are allowing loopholes for among, I mean, literally the 1% of the 1%. So there's that. We have no agreement there. I very much believe that the BBB is going to pass if just because there are moderates who very much want to make this happen and very much want to take salt home back to their voters. But let's put that aside for now. Let's put the salt on the side. Let's delve into when the BBB might actually be voted on. Now, remember, the House wanted to pass their version of the Build Back Better bill before they passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill last Friday. This was where all the drama was. Effectively, the progressives understood there was a need to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. And so at the very least, they wanted moderate votes on the Build Back Better bill that was then going to be sent to the Senate. We're going to get to that in a second. The moderates said no. 
We will not vote for this version of the Build Back Better bill. We need for you to send it to the Congressional Budget Office. We need to get a score on this bill before we vote on it. And so what they settled on was a promise. Pramila Jayapal, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which blocked not one but two votes on the bipartisan infrastructure bill in her attempt to keep these two bills linked, an ultimately failed attempt to keep these two bills linked, ultimately agreed that she would allow her members to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill and effectively delink them if the moderates agreed that they would vote on it by the week of November 15th, next week, after they got information from the Congressional Budget Office. So this is Jayapal earlier this week making sure that everybody needs to know she means what she said. To clarify for everybody, the agreement that we made with our colleagues was not for a CBO score. It was for some additional financial information from the CBO. Agreement also says that in no event would the vote take place later than the week of November 15th. We trust our colleagues' commitments. So, vote's going to happen, right? I wouldn't bet on it. I just wouldn't. Some of the moderates are already making noise saying, no, 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 no. We need it to be scored by the Congressional Budget Office. And also, I don't think that there's a ton of love lost considering the fact that Pramila Jayapal, again, over the last few months, blew through not one but two deadlines that were promised to the moderates by House leadership. And of course, none of this really matters because what's passed in the House is going to be used as toilet paper in the Senate where this real deal is going to be crafted. And the man in the middle of that, Joe Manchin. Permission to come aboard. Joe Manchin is a financial moderate. Joe Manchin is worried about this week's big economic news. While many economic indicators are going in the right direction for Joe Biden, including declining uh, unemployment claims, increased employment numbers. Uh, they actually had em employment uh, uh, numbers beat expectations this month, which is a rarity and a welcome sight for Joe Biden. They weren't more than a week away from more bad news. The Consumer Price Index said that there is record inflation, 6.2% from a year ago in October. That is the largest increase since December 1990. Core inflation, uh, stripping out food and energy, increased 4.6%, the fastest gain since August 1991. Energy, shelter, and vehicle costs led the gains, which more than wipe out whatever wage increases workers have received over the past few months. This is a problem. Yes, workers have had greater ability to come back at higher wages as America restaffs up. And there is a supply shortage, or sorry, a labor shortage. So workers have more ways to negotiate. However, if you account for the price of inflation, and this is hitting everywhere, food, gas, consumable goods, if that happens, then 
at the end of the day, you're actually making less money because everything else is more expensive. This is what Joe Manchin tweeted on Wednesday. By all accounts, the threat posed by record inflation to the American people is not transitory and is instead getting worse. From grocery stores to the gas pump, Americans know that the inflation tax is real and D.C. can no longer ignore the economic pain Americans feel every day. Now, does that sound to you like somebody who's very excited to push forward beyond his comfort zone on a social spending bill that he has reported, sorry, repeatedly, not reportedly, repeatedly in public, out loud, said is going to make inflation worse? If you're going to ask your boy, I would say no. I do not believe that that sounds like somebody who is ready to push forward on something more than exactly what he believes is proper. As always, friends, uh, buckle up. But, uh, you know, I made a bet with Jen Briney from Congressional Dish that uh, the BBB would pass. And that still is my assumption. Um, that being said, boy, do I get a bad vibe on all this? Like it it doesn't seem, you know, the, the progressives played their hand. It didn't work. Now the question is, well, well, how much do they give and how much do they complain about it? We haven't seen a, a, a ton of, uh, of, you know, rioting from from progressives. There is some backlash on voting for the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but man, it just looks like there's bad vibes ahead. That's all I'll say. Buckle up. India Walton is the name of the progressive Democrat who during the primary season, beat out Mayor Byron Brown to become the official Democratic nominee for mayor of Buffalo, New York. Stand up, WNY. Pull up a roast beef on Weck, because I got a tale for you. Byron Brown did not lay down. No, instead, he ran a write-in campaign. Now, in many states, this is illegal. Or it's hard. It's hard to get on a ballot in any way. Well, I guess for a writing campaign, you you wouldn't have to. But a lot of states have store loser laws, is what I'm saying. Is that once you lose in a primary, it's hard for you to come back and and run stuff. And even then, if you're in a write-in campaign, boy, does that take a lot of name recognition for you to have any chance to make this real. Well, Byron did it. Guess what? He won. The fact that Brown won has incensed progressives who believed that India Walton was going to be a big national story. And, you know, whenever you've got warring factions within a party... Every once in a while, you need somebody to give something to bind the two elements. 
And so for progressives, uh, many of whom were were really ignited through the 2016 run of Bernie Sanders, there has been this hope, through, especially throughout 2020, that, well, maybe now they'll take us seriously. Maybe after Bernie runs again in 2020 and has a bigger showing, but then plays ball at the end and doesn't stay in the race forever and doesn't, you know, uh, uh, make all the bad blood that he did with Hillary. Maybe there is a path forward for this kind of stuff. And beating an established politician in a primary is one of them. Now, that same politician coming back and running in a write-in campaign seems to erase some of that goodwill. And so progressives are furious. And the way that they're trying to take it out is by, well, appealing to the mods, the heads of the national party. They say that they want Brown out. Any leadership position that he is in should be stripped. We quote Larry Cohen, chair of the Bernie Sanders aligned group, Our Revolution. When you pull a stunt like this, somebody wins a primary, a working class woman, and you go to every rich donor in both parties to fund a write-in campaign, it's a disgrace. Walton herself said not only should Brown be stripped, it sets a troubling precedent if he does not. So what's going to happen? Nothing. No, nothing's going to happen. I mean, look. I have said from the very beginning that the Democratic Party is a warlord party. It is only changed when you take tribal control of the party. Historically, Republicans were a little bit bit different. They they were a little bit more cohesive because they've had, they, they get a lot more lifers that are like just party people in that organization, like the RNC. Now, that was upset a lot by Donald Trump, who came in and was very Democratic, like a warlord that just took over things. Although now that he is out and and we'll see what happens over the next two years, but you've, you've sort of seen an element of reversion. The old heads have survived. And yes, the Republican Party will be changed on some level, but there will still be consistency. My message to progressives has always been either you win the presidency or you have no say. There is no amount of incremental change that will bring more respect from establishment Democrats to progressives. Not at all. You have leverage against their electability, and that's it. And even then, You've got to show them a path forward in terms of being able to win if you want anybody to give you a chance. Ladies and gentlemen, you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. It is quite simply the only way that you get bonus content from this program. It's our Patreon. You get a custom RSS feed. You can throw it in the podcatcher of your choice. And you, yes, you can get a bonus show on Monday morning, a bonus show 
on Thursday afternoon. That's our late edition. And quite frankly, it's like I'm recording this earlier in the week. I know it comes out on Friday, but I try to make it evergreen. So it's still valid. But just the way that the, the, the cookie crumbles is that I record this earlier. If you if anything breaks between Wednesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon, the only place to hear my opinion on it is on our Patreon late edition. So treat yourself. As we're about to start talking about in our next segment, we are only 360 days away from the midterms. If there was ever a year that you deserve to have the full breadth of PX3, because remember in the midterms, they are not the same one narrative that everybody's covering. No, 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 no. We've got a billion, just a, a, a cavalcade of stars, a glittering universe of narratives. And I'm going to be here to sort through all of it. Not once a week, not twice a week, like we have here on the free feed, but three times a week and four times a week if you are a member of our Patreon at the $3 level. So treat yourself to it and support the only crowd-funded national traveling reporter by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 level gets you two bonus podcasts each and every week. There are 360 days from right now until the midterms. 360 days until we see if Democrats can fight back a red wave in the House. 360 days to see if if Republicans can fend off a well-funded attempt to seize various governors' mansions. And 360 days to see if Coke. Kane, Mitch McConnell will be the Senate Majority Leader yet again. So what will happen? Our guest today will help us figure it out in our far too early breakdown of the midterms. He is a columnist for thelines.com and a political betting analysis. You can find his newsletter on Substack. It is Scrimshaw Unscripted. Let's welcome back to the show, Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome back to the show, Evan. Uh, glad, to, glad to do this. I always love coming on. All right. So uh, uh, let's let's begin with where we had uh, uh, left our last conversation. Uh, uh, you, you're going to have to eat a little bit of crow on Virginia, right? Because you were, you were hard McAuliffe plus I think six by the end of it. Yeah, no. So I just, I mean, I totally got Virginia wrong and there's no, there's no hiding it. There's no running from it. There's no, there's no sort of blurring it. I got it wrong. I, what, what, what did you get was, wrong specifically? So two main things I got wrong. One, I thought that national partnership is going to matter more than it did partially because of the California recall which we all remember was, you know, close for a bit and then sort of settled into, you know, a still considerable GOP overperformance from 2018. And then uh, Gavin Newsom just did exactly as well as, as, as he did back in his initial election. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing was that 2020, there were a pair of red state 
uh, governor trips up the same day as the presidential and in Missouri and Montana, the two polls had been very close, like the, the polls had been close or, or close ish. And those polls were just completely wrong because state partisanship kicked in. And despite the fact that the GOP didn't have incumbents, they were in places with a history of electing Democratic governors, even while the state trended, you know, the states turned right at a at a federal level. And in both cases, the polls just missed and the states voted the way they voted. And the other thing is, is that I didn't think the GOP could sort of substantially or significantly outrun Donald Trump in rural Virginia. Yeah. And whites, whites without a college degree. I think even even as I was <laughs> tweeting about the exit polls, uh, which which showed that you were you were uh, very incredulous to the idea that that was possible. Yeah. And and. The thing is, is that the I think it was the two districts with the biggest uh, or, or two of the districts with the biggest uh, McCall or Biden. Uh, where where, uh, where Glenn Youngkin did best compared to 2020 were Virginia nine, which is southwest Virginia mm-hmm. and Virginia six, which is western sort of, I guess you might call it northwestern Virginia. Um, and. I just didn't think, you know, 10, 12, 13 point over performances in those areas was really possible, but it was. And that was sort of the big thing that I got wrong. So in my mind, both of these things had to happen for Glenn Youngkin to win. Not only does he need to to overperform in these red areas, but he has to also close the gap in some of the suburban districts that you have uh, a very much kind of made your bread and butter on fundamentally saying is a global realignment, right? That these these suburban districts of college educated uh, voters that might have at some point trended Republican are now coming home to the more liberal parties, not only here in America, but also uh, uh, elsewhere around the globe. Youngkin was able to close that gap and from my point of view, being down on the ground in Virginia, it was because of issues like education. Do the results coming out of Virginia give you any pause to your global effing realignment? Uh, so, I mean, obviously, everything gives me a little bit of a pause. I'm not arrogant enough to look at an election sure. that I, I, again, I got totally wrong and, and just sort of dismiss it. Uh, I will say that the swing in the Northern Virginia suburbs was smaller than the swing statewide. And if you look at South, uh, South side, uh, sort of Hampton roads, Richmond area, yep. uh, the biggest, the, so Youngkin needed three things to happen to win. He needed really good rural turnout and rural margins. He needed some suburban reversion and he needed really bad, uh, democratic turnout amongst non-white voters. And he got all three. Now, had he just gotten two of those three, he might have lost by a point, point and a half, which still would have been a horrible sign for Democrats in terms of 2022 prognostication or whatever else. But so the thing we don't know is how uh, McAuliffe did compared to Biden or compared to uh, Ralph Northam in white educated pockets, as opposed to doing worse in Nova in part or in full, because he didn't get the same proportion of black voters out in those areas, because even if whites with a degree in Nova 
are trending left, they're still less reliably Democratic voters than black voters. The other thing is that uh, in New Jersey, where uh, Phil Murphy, you know, got, you know, close to run down by. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which was name I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Uh, I, I, I believe it's Chicharelli, but but uh, which which uh, shout out to New Jersey, one of the few states in the union that can still na- statewide run a Chicharelli. But uh, <laughs> yes, uh, 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 was that even on your radar? That was not on my radar at all, New Jersey. So this is like one person DM to me being like, do you have a New Jersey take? And I'm like, uh, he wins by like 11, yeah. like that, like that's the, like, like, like he probably wins by like 10 ish and like 11 is kind of your border of like, uh, if he does better than 11, it's a good night for Democrats nationally. If he does worse than 11, it's probably not a great night for them. But like, I never tweeted that prediction because like, that was just a, that was the most off the hip like no data to back it up prediction. And therefore I, you know, I'm not going to share that publicly, but uh, in two highly educated counties, uh, uh, Phil Murphy did better than, uh, that he did in 2017. And two of the biggest swings in the state were South New Jersey uh, counties where I think it was like 18% in one district and 21% have bachelor degrees. And so even within that like horrible global result for, for Phil Murphy, he did better than 2017 in a pair of highly educated suburban districts and got smashed in South Jersey yeah. where education's lower. And so you're still seeing a lot of evidence of the realignment. Um, Virginia isn't, the greatest sign, and it does suggest that the realignment isn't maybe as permanent for governorships, which could be interesting for 2022 to keep in mind. But you're still seeing the trend, and you're still seeing the you're still seeing things move in that direction. And I think so. The big issue is that even while the blue areas do get bluer, the red areas have not stopped getting redder, which which now kind of changes some of the calculus. If you assumed that it was Donald Trump, that was a unique animating factor there. Correct. All right. Well, that's that. And uh, what we like, uh, we like having you here on the show because you do come up with your own fundamentals and you do loudly tout them. So we've got new evidence. And more specifically, we've got midterms that are uh, officially now less than a year away. So this is going to be our, our way too early midterm uh, uh, rundown. And we do have a news peg for it. So let's start there. Uh, Governor Sununu of New Hampshire, popular there was running ahead of uh, uh, Maggie Hassan in that New Hampshire uh, Senate seat, at least according to polls over the last few months announces on Tuesday that he will not seek that Senate seat. This would have been something that I think would have been probably devastating to Republican uh, hopes to take the Senate two weeks ago is while it's still very good news for Democrats. Is it the same kind of bad news for Republicans post Virginia and New Jersey? Yes, because the thing about the Senate is because we're talking about, you know, four competitive Democratic seats this year, right? Uh, New Hampshire, Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. Like, even a, say, 20% drop in GOP win expectancy in just one seat is like a, is like a, you know, five 
ish percent change in their overall Senate odds. And yeah. the thing is, is that I thought New Hampshire was the most likely GOP was the most likely state the GOP were going to flip. I, I understand that the the New Hampshire GOP are not having the best time, but that's not Kristen Nunu's problem. That is a that is a state GOP problem. And yeah. So Nunu has managed to inoculate himself from a lot of the sort of claims that they're a fairly extremist state party. Uh, he's a popular governor. He's going to clearly be reelected to his governorship next year because that's why he's running again. But I mean, I thought the GOP were Senate favorites after Tuesday after Virginia, but that was on the basis that they could flip that they could flip New Hampshire. I thought that was basically, I don't want to say it was in the bag or anything, but I thought they were. That, that was, that know, was the most likely I mean, based on, based on what, what I would, you know, guess, uh, I think, you well, know, when, when, when you're having, yeah, when you're having the, that dude run five points ahead in, in polls throughout the last year, like I would, I would expect it. Yeah. And, and the thing about New Hampshire is, is that there's, there's a lot of people who was still some residual ancestral understanding of like, I can vote for Chris Nunu and I can vote for Republicans at various points of the ticket, even for yeah. a Biden plus, I think it was a Biden plus seven state. And the, the thing, the thing for Republicans is that, cause they just need one, right? They, it's a 50, 50 Senate. They just need one to get to 51. And the problem is, is that like, oh, yeah, they should be able, like, like, if you just think about this in a sort of like broad sense, you know, it's just like, OK, so they're they, they have to win a, a state that Biden won by two, a state that Biden won by two tenths of a percent, a state that Biden won by three tenths of a percent or New Hampshire by, oh, we'll just get to run Sununu and he'll and he'll sort of like shake up the, the, the state partisanship. And you're just like, well, they'll get one of them, right? OK, well, Sununu's yeah. not running in New Hampshire. And Kelly Ayotte has said she isn't going to run for the Senate again. That could change. But if the GOP, like other than those two, the New Hampshire GOP don't have any credible candidates to be asked. Okay. Not great for them. Uh, in Georgia. And then you, if you go through uh, the although, other Although states, I will point out before, before we move off New Hampshire, that, that uh, 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 Kelly Ayotte did lose by like, I think it was like 12,000 votes against Maggie Hassan. So oh, it's not like. Not even. Like, not not yeah. even. No, no. If if Ayotte, if Ayotte runs, like that's a credible threat to Democrats. Yeah. If she doesn't run, and it's literally anybody else, Hassan's going to win again. But but Ayotte is is a is a is a very credible threat to Democrats. Yes. Uh, uh, all right. Well, then here let, let me let me let me let me before we uh, go through let's let's uh, uh, do a little bit of news peg here. This is a crystal ball set it rating changes that happened after the Tuesday races. Uh, they take Mark Kelly. In Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia and Cortez Masto in uh, Nevada move them from lean Democratic to toss ups. And Michael Bennett in Colorado goes from safe Democratic to likely Democratic. Let's let's start with Bennett. Uh, I, I presume that you don't think that that this is a seat that even after what happened on Tuesday is really in play. Because the thing is, is that. You could maybe, maybe sell me that Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, might lose because state races are inherently less sort of federally partisan. You see that with Kansas. But I think the Kansas example sort of informs this pretty well for me, which is Kansas voters had no problem voting for uh, Laura Kelly in 2018, had no problem electing, uh, you know, a Democratic ticket for governor. In a, in a in a red year or in a blue year and then the idea that they were going to vote for barbara bollier for the senate was just like no there was no interest in federal vote splitting 
but state and federal. Yeah. They were totally fine with that. And I think that, you know, if the environment was bad, you could maybe see, see Polis in a tight race. They're not going to get rid of Michael Bennett. Yeah. All right. Then if we, if we assume that Bennett's a loser, then I'm going to give you those other three, Kelly in Arizona, Warnock in Georgia and Cortez Masto in Nevada. We just had this this big surprising result. I don't I haven't I don't have the prices in front of me for any of these races, but I assume that all the Democrats are leading. If you're going to pick one as a possible upset, who do you like the most? So the I, I just read about this for my political betting column in the lines uh, this week. They're actually all underdogs. Like all the Democrats are really? underdogs because the yeah because the markets have have massively overreacted, um, which is funny because I went into writing that column sort of expecting the same thing as you. It's like oh they're all going to be toss ups, and I can sort of you know burnish some conservative credentials and be like well you know maybe maybe Arizona is a good buy. And the problem is that Democrats are all like 40, 60 underdogs in all these races. Wow. <laughs> so I mean those have to correct so, right. Uh, or else, or else jump on him now. Jump. I mean, I, I, think, yeah. I think if you're just betting, then jump on Kelly Warnock and Cortez Masto now because they're 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 they've got a better than puncher's chance of winning. Uh, I mean, if you really, I mean, if you just want like free, if you just want like free money, uh, Michael Bennett's down to uh, seventy eight cents on predictor right now to win again, which seems yeah. absurd. Um, but so the thing is that I think Warnock is the safest of those three. Uh, and I actually think him and Cortez Masto are, I still think they're going to win because we'll, we'll do Georgia first. Uh, Warnock is a black pastor with a proven ability to get extremely good black turnout, even in off cycle races. He can drive his own turnout in a very real and substantial way. Uh, the Georgia democratic party and the sort of Abrams machine, uh, has proven themselves to be very competent in the last year. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the runoff, the runoff campaign that him and John Ossoff ran was immaculate. And to whatever extent you want to credit John Ossoff for that wizardry wizardry. And I, and I think sort of consensus is that he ran one of the best campaigns in 2020 after running a horrible campaign in 2017. Um, Ossoff and Warnock are still bros. Uh, they were at one of the Braves playoff, like home playoff games together. And so, to whatever extent Ossoff, you know, might be might have been responsible for the for for coordination or or, or whatever else, he's still going to show up. He's still going to help out his Senate colleague. And Herschel Walker is a horrible candidate. He barely lives in Georgia. He's a nostalgia play for you know boomers, but I mean, all those people are already voting Republican anyways, and. He's, he's got the the you know the abuse allegations against him too from a from an ex wife. But the biggest thing about the biggest thing about uh, Walker is, is that the sort of underlying assumption of running Herschel Walker is the Georgia GOP will get 12, 13, 14, 15 percent of the black vote by running a black candidate. They will get this boost in the black vote. And that assumption seems um, highly, highly unlikely to me. Yeah, I, and- I will say I will say that there is a difference between running a black candidate and running Herschel Walker in Georgia. Like Her- Her- Herschel Walker is, and, and I, I think I agree with your pessimism that, that uh, he is, he is a, a, uh, uh, for me is a, a very high risk, high reward candidate for the Republican party. He certainly has the Trump 
blessing. He has tremendous name recognition. But I do think that he does represent a a a something more than just replacement level black candidate, black Republican candidate in Georgia. But the thing is, I don't know if his name recognition is actually that high because a he's lived in Texas for like thirty years, and also didn't he play college football in like the seventies? Mm, I mean, I guess it might have started early, in the seventies. He certainly early, was early eighties. Like, well, I mean, he was yeah, he was part of the the big trade with the Dallas Cowboys in the in the late eighties that kind of set up their dynasty throughout the nineties. Uh, uh, yes, yes, and I I. I College football never dies in the South. The heroes that live there live there forever. SEC football is a a, a religion, literally. And, and if that is the case, then he is one of the demigods in the state that he is running in. So I I do think that it is more than just a candidate that would have a line in with the black community more so than, you know, or, or to to combat Raphael Warnock's. I I think the larger problem with Herschel Walker is that he's never run a political campaign before. And he is somebody that we, you know, to me, it would not be shocking if we see a a gaff after gaff after gaff from Herschel Walker. Yeah. And I don't think I, I just don't think he can run the kind of uh disciplined campaign that Brian Kemp did in 2018 because Kemp managed to manage to pull together an extremely good campaign where he was conservative enough to get extremely good rural turnout without staying enough to mess up his margins in the blood red excerpts, uh, specifically Forsyth. And he won Forsyth, like uh, Brian Kemp won Forsyth by 10 points more than uh, Donald Trump did. And the the path to the GOP winning Georgia again is they win Forsyth by 40, not 33. And I don't think Walker's uh, brash, uh, you know, animated style, and I certainly don't think his uh, past allegations are going to play well with the uh, educated social liberals uh, who, you know, like their tax cuts in, in Forsyth and in the sort of Georgia metro as a whole. And that's, I think, in some ways, even the bigger problem for for Georgia Republicans is that they have to walk such a fine line between being conservative enough for the for the rules, but being disciplined enough to to still get your margins in and around Atlanta. And I don't think you can pull it off. I I, I share your pessimism in 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 the end, and I I generally would not be in any way confident with anything having to do with Georgia Republicans, considering. We are about to get into a bizarre primary there with Trump having Raffensperger and and uh, uh, Brian Kemp on his enemies list and everything that's going to go along with that. All right, so so let's so let's move off Georgia. Let's look at uh, uh, where do you want to go? Uh, uh, Arizona or Nevada? I think I think Nevada is the more interesting one, just because uh, we've seen Democrats outperform national trends before in in Nevada, right? Uh, Harry Reid. Came came back from the dead in his 2010 race. Uh, it's a state that doesn't move a lot. Generally speaking, Democrats have a registration advantage in Clark County or built mostly out of Clark County. And the thing about Nevada is there's like, I don't know how many counties exactly, but Democrats can literally win with 
one county. Cortez it's, Masto yeah, literally it, it, won it, by it, winning it, Clark it, it's and Clark County. every other county yeah. in the in the state. And so I, I think I think it's like sixty or seventy percent of the population, if I'm if I'm correct, it's, it's, it's Clark it's, County, it, which it's is seventy. Which, it's seventy percent, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is uh, for those who are unaware, it's it's Vegas. That is Vegas. The other yeah. tiny little pocket of population is up near Reno, but by and large, you are running your campaign in and around you know the 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 Strip, Henderson, all all, all that. And so, so Biden only won by two, which wasn't a great result in the context of he basically ran even with Hillary, but he did two, you know, two and a half points better than Hillary nationally. So that wasn't a great result. John Ralston, who is sort of the oracle of Nevada politics, uh, has been, uh, let's just say, deeply uncomplimentary about the campaign of GOP uh, Senate, presumed GOP Senate nominee uh, Adam Laxalt, who lost the governorship in 2018. But the biggest thing is, is that, and, and Ralston has sort of made this point before, is that people talk a lot about like, oh, did the pandemic hurt Democratic campaign operations? I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, bearish on the idea that like, oh, they would have, you know, come within three in Texas or whatever. Uh, yeah, without I, don't, it. I don't think that. But, but Ralston has said in the past that he thinks that the pandemic might have hurt Democrats in Nevada specifically to some degree which makes me think that if democrats can get the the sort of read machine can reconstitute that can can get that out in force again in 2022 they're going to be in a better spot and i think the other thing is is running a hispanic senator when you're having some problems with hispanic communities i think that cortez masto is going to be a good candidate to make sure that the uh that the hispanic slippage from 2020 doesn't get worse and it might even get better and Laxalt's not a particularly good candidate. He also suffers from the sort of carpet beggar problem of he doesn't really live in Nevada. Um, and so I think Democrats should feel pretty good about that one. All right. Then that leaves Mark Kelly. Do you think he's the most vulnerable? Uh, yeah, as of right now, yeah, because uh, I, I think Hassan is I, I thought Hassan was the most vulnerable until this morning. Now that she now that Sunu is not running, I think it's Mark Kelly. If but this is another one where the primary is really going to matter uh, yeah. because and, you have... and, and, and so far, so far, the Arizona GOP has been a tire fire like they, they have. They have yes. been at war with each other for the last four years. Yes. Uh, so you have the I think it's AG uh, Mark Burdovich, who is trying to run as the like establishment candidate who is trying to be sort of Republican enough to get through his primary without having to say anything too crazy. The problem with that is, and, and and he has a good record of election. You know, he won pretty comfortably in 2018. How much of that was just Democrats weren't really focusing on his race? Yeah, hard to tell. But he at least is a statewide elected, could raise some money. You know, he'd he'd be a formidable challenger. And I think if he's the nominee, I think you know Kelly's in a you know toss-up race. It might be you know the ever so slightest of an underdog. The problem for Arizona Republicans is. Uh, Bernovich refuses to like deal with any of the like election truth ring. Like, yeah, Bernovich has said Joe Biden's the you know the duly elected president, and for everyone he says that, but Glenn Youngkin said the same thing. Glenn Youngkin didn't have to run in a primary, guys. Bernovich, yeah, does. he was he was he was selected at uh, the the convention, right? Yes, or exactly. Whatever, whatever convention, committee uh, thing uh, they did. A convention literally designed at every point to be as anti-democratic as possible so that he would win. Um, yes. Cause they were trying to get, they were trying to stop Amanda chase. Um, who's, who's, who's nuts. Um, and the problem for Arizona Republicans is that if, 
if Brnovich has to, if, if Brnovich has to engage in basically electricism, well, that's red meat for Mark Kelly and his reelect, but I don't know if he can win the primary without engaging in some election truth ring. And if he loses the primary too, I think it's a guy named Blake Masters who uh, is like a, tr- I don't know if he has a Trump endorsement, but uh, he's certainly the leading sort of like uh, Trump cultist of the race. And if he's the nominee, Mark Kelly is a lose to him. And that's the Arizona GOP problem of, can they get their preferred candidate through that primary and get him through sort of, you know, with, with, with enough of his reputation intact, hard to say, which is why I think Kelly is still a slight favorite to win again. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there is going to be a real interesting question, especially in, in situations like that, where will Republican voters in purple States be animated by pragmatism on a level that they might not have been in the past because they just saw what happened with Yunkin because they saw like, all right, look, focus on these certain issues and we don't need to litigate 2020 again. And we don't need to, uh, you know, you you treat Trump like a ex president in a purple state, which is to say, thank you for your endorsement and move on. But you don't have to go through every single uh, a check down of his his playbook. Uh, I I wonder primary wise whether or not that's going to be an issue. But if there's one thing we've seen about the Arizona GOP, they are not. Uh, uh, they're certainly not shy about making things very loud and very personal. Yeah, exactly. And that's the that's the thing that might because in in 2010 and in 2012, right, the GOP threw away the Delaware, you know, Delaware. Uh, Nevada in 2012, Indiana, Missouri, by just running horrible candidates. And a lot of the people who voted for the same moderate candidates in those races, I cannot believe I just referred to Dick Luger as a moderate, but in that primary, he was. Uh, a lot of them now vote for Democrats. The part of the yeah. global effing realignment is that well-educated, high-information voters tend to be Democrats now. And so you might end up seeing a situation where some of the people who were in 2010 and 2012 sort of standing guard against the the crank ascendancy of the GOP, which was then the Tea Party, they're not there anymore to sort of hold the door, hold the line against the new crank ascendancy. And that could be a big problem for the GOP. I, I think less so in House races because we generally don't like House candidates matter, but they don't matter on that kind of scale. And if the GOP are going to have the kind of night that they're going to have, it doesn't really matter. Like the national environment is all that really matters for the house. Um, because you have, because even if you blow one or two individual seats on horrible candidates, that doesn't yeah. matter so much for your, like, like you, you one or two races isn't going to move your overall house win percentage. Uh, but in the Senate, it really does. And if they throw away, if they throw away Arizona, like your path to the majority just gets so much narrower and you're relying on Biden being you know, more deeply unpopular than if you were able to run, you know, moderate, sensible, reasonable candidates across those four states. All right. Uh, uh, one last or two last questions and I'll get you out of here. Uh, what is your line for the house as of now? So if you were going to set the line of, of, uh, uh R plus whatever D plus whatever, where, where do you have it now? So I've got the GOP winning, 225 seats right now so my my sort of expected house would be 
Republicans 225, Democrats 210, just because like the GOP are like they have to be favorites to win that at this point. Like if you're if you're in denial, and, with and, that, and, and just, this, this is a change because initially you were you were you were uh, uh, looking at the midterm saying that that uh, the Democrats might hold. Yeah, and 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 I still think there's a chance that they can hold, but yeah. I mean, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah, uh, yeah. At at some point, you know, there's there's sort of you know there's you know. Like the, the 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 reason I was optimistic Democrats could hold is that the the polls that asked the Jared Allen polls looked pretty good for Democrats, and then like I I tweeted before Virginia like okay one of these two things is wrong either the Virginia polls are wrong or the Jared Allen is wrong but one of yeah. these two things is wrong because the Jared Allen was basically like no chance since twenty twenty nothing's happening yada 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 and the Virginia polls were like yeah twelve point swing well the Jared Allen polls look pretty damn wrong to me. And so I'm a, I'm a house pessimist. I, but the thing is, is that it's really hard actually to see the GOP gaining 20, 30, 40, 50 seats like the 2010 landslides because okay. because redistricting, because of redistricting, basically Democrats are probably going to lock in 200 seats. Republicans are going to do the same. Right. And so the battlefield that you're playing on is going to be so much narrower this time as Illinois Republican, uh, Illinois Democrats, uh, New York Democrats, you know, they're going to they're going to draw out a lot of Republicans. And so you're not going to see sort of House Democrats fall to the same to the same extent they did last time. And I do think the GOP get a, a sort of, you know, slightly bigger than the majority Nancy Pelosi has right now. And but uh, it's hard to see how Democrats get to 218. They can get close. I just don't think they can get 218 right now but you know yeah biden could get more popular in theory all right so so republicans plus 15 in the house what about the senate oh if you would ask if we recorded this yesterday i would have said the gop gain new hampshire and nothing else changes i think i'm gonna say nothing i'm gonna i think i'm gonna say no senate seat changes by so even no 50 50 50 no, I think Connor Lamb. I know. I still think Connor Lamb wins in Pennsylvania. So fifty-one forty-nine Democrats. Okay, so you would say the 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 Democrats gain. So it'd be D plus one would be your 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 expectation as of right now in in twenty twenty two. Yeah, as of right now, obviously things are subject to change in candidates. Will matter, but yeah, I think as of right now, D plus one fifty-one forty-nine Dems. All right, uh, uh, you've got a, a a novel coming out. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that, you know, living in 2021 has allowed me to do is a lot of just have a lot of time to write. And so just for myself, I started writing a novel earlier this year and I finished it. I kind of sat with it for a while and I decided it was good enough to publish. So I'm publishing it. It's a it's a political story. It's a campaign story. Uh, It's, you know, a Canadian political whiz kid moves to the States for school uh he ends up working on a on a texas campaign and uh he moves to texas a&m college station and you know there's some campaign intrigue he pledges one of the fraternities there there's a guy he can't stop thinking about some stuff happens i think it's pretty good uh there we go you know if you want to if you want to buy it the uh it's my pin tweet on uh it's my pin tweet on twitter uh what, what what is it called and where can people find it on amazon 
Uh, yeah, people can find it on Amazon. Uh, links in my pin tweet, and the book is called Salvation in the Storm. There we go. And then uh, uh, where can folks uh, read your election betting writing? So my election betting columns are at uh, thelines.com. My general political writing is at scrimshawunscripted.substack.com. And you can find links to everything I've ever written at when you follow me on Twitter at eScrimshaw. Perfect. Uh, well, uh, Evan, you know, we, we love talking to you here and uh, uh, we are looking forward to catching up with you uh, throughout this entire midterms as things continue to shift and change. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This show was edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to say thank you to Evan for pointing out some of the betting tips, giving us his insight. And I always like to have, I like Evan on mostly because he's he's got a breadth of knowledge he's unafraid to say his opinion and that's that's rare especially in betting where you get a lot of people that are like hedgers but he is bold and if we have him on throughout you know the series of the midterms we can track everybody's political opinions i really appreciate that i think that you appreciate it as well so why don't you go ahead and let him know that you do appreciate it px3guest.com If you want to email the program, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live. Hopefully we were were back on the air this morning. I was a little sick, so I didn't... uh I didn't. I hadn't gone on previously throughout the week, but I will be there more as I get better. px3podcast.com is where you can share this very program with your friends and family. And of course, the holidays coming up politicsmerch.com if you want to get your friend, family, or loved one the gift of politics merch, PX3 merch Uh, just go ahead and do it right there, politicsmerch.com if you want to support us you can do so with a one-time donation paypal.me slash payjury Venmo is justin-young-20 and our cash app is px3cash you want to give me anything in the mail uh, you can do so. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. Again, that is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And, of course, you can always get our bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read in the Titanic. $10 tier including Idris Arslandi and DJ Katie Mack, Meister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, DeKinse, Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, T- 70s TV salesman, or spy, D. Really, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please.com, Junkie, DP4, Bungo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Sergeant, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Double K Ranch, Pop Gold, Ye Old Pinball Shop, John Snuffy's Off Route 44, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Stephen, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Robert, D. Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, The Gen, Will, J. Pink, 
and Andrew. If you want your name on that list, only one place to do it, especially as the midterms approach. Let's take politics seriously.com. Guys, I hope you have a great weekend. Hope you have a good restorative weekend. I can't believe that we are already getting into the holiday swing. We are already barreling toward my favorite, uh, my favorite holiday, Thanksgiving. I'm going to be back in the uh, embrace of my family, which I have not seen at a Thanksgiving for many, many years. And it's um, something that I find pretty precious. So till next time. This is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss Dog and Pony Show Audio.